All right. Exams are graded. If you've looked, grades are up there. If you don't want to look, don't look. I will give them back on Monday. Or Monday. I won't give them back on Monday. If you want to come in Monday, go ahead, but I won't be here. I'll be across the state Monday. So don't, don't worry about Monday. Don't come get them on Monday. I'll give them back on Wednesday, Wednesday, though. I still have a couple people that missed that I'm giving a chance to make it up to today. So um, was not, not as good as the last exam, not even close. It was actually the average was a 31.4, which was kind of yucky, uh, or 62%. So it wasn't near as good. Was it that much harder or? Yes? No? Obviously it must have been harder. I don't know if I just surprised you with questions or? No? Okay. <laughs> well, I, ha I have another, I have a project coming up that you get a chance to make up an exam. So there is something up. So if you did really poorly on one, I have a project that I'll probably try to give you out next week that'll be due in November that you have a chance, optional, but you can cut out one of your exam grades if you, if you like. So I'll give you that information, not on Monday, but probably on Wednesday or Friday of next week. I'll try not, I'm not planning on giving it to you Monday, but, but I'll have that. So if you did really poorly on it, don't worry about it too much. I do have an option and we'll see what we can go, where we can go from there. Uh, otherwise, assignments coming up, haven't really, nothing's really changed for this class. Solar observations and homework four are due next Friday. There will be a quiz next Friday in class covering material in chapter 10 and primarily the HR diagram which we'll go over today and then again on Wednesday. And so that'll be, that's coming up there. The second article review is due the following week two weeks from today on the 19th. You are welcome to use this, the same list of articles if you want to get a second one from there. If you've used those before, the ones that are on D2L, I'm not putting up another set. So there were several there. If you want to pick out a different one to do this, this time, you're welcome to do that. And then I put the schedule up for the iTunes quiz. The second one will be available starting on October 15th in a week and a half. And that will cover all the pictures through the 12th of October, through a week from today. And only going back to the end of the last quiz. So it won't go back, you won't go back to anything that you covered previously. This will cover just the newer pictures, just about that month's worth. And will be the same format and style of the, as the previous quiz. I did put up there just for convenience, I did the last one for the full week. I'm going to leave that one up for the full week as well. So you'll have it. It'll be available on Monday and you can take it any time through the following Monday to complete it. And you'll have the similar number of tries and everything else that we did last time. So that's what's coming up. Questions? Questions? Did nothing really change for this class. I just added, added in one more. All right. Picture of the day for today then. Another aurora. No, no goat in this one as we saw on Wednesday. Um, but another picture of the aurora. You got the green aurora. The lower part in the atmosphere. If the, when the particles strike lower down in the atmosphere, we get a greenish glow from the aurora. When they strike higher up, we get a red. And in this case, when you've got that red and bluish green kind of mixing, you get a purple color there. So an unusual coloring to the aurora here. But that's really not the key point. It's a pretty picture of the aurora taken here from Norway. But the key thing of the picture was what the photographer didn't intend to take that happened to get was not just a meteor coming through, but actually what's called a fireball. So something a little bit bigger than a meteor. So you have this streak of light here. If you've seen a shooting star before, you see that little, speck, that little flash of light going through the sky. 
A shooting star or a meteor is typically a grain of sand or smaller, much smaller than a grain of sand, like a speck of dust burning up in the Earth's atmosphere. Glows real brightly for an instant and then disappears. A fireball like this is something much bigger, not this big, you're talking maybe like a pebble, that burns up in the Earth's atmosphere. So something significantly smaller burning up in the Earth's atmosphere and, ca thank you, and causing a much brighter glow than you get from a typical meteor. Typical meteor doesn't light up the countryside. But you can see here, if you look at the side of the mountain here, it's been illuminated by that fireball. So it was that bright for that small, that short, that little bit of a time while the photographer happened to be capturing this image of the aurora. You know, just happened to get it at the right second. You, you can't plan on photographing one of these. They'll be there when they're there and you've got to happen to click your camera open or have your camera open at the right instant. If the camera had shut off, you know, two seconds before that occurred, then this, this photographer would be kicking himself or herself because you'd just have missed it or if you turned it on a few seconds too late. But you can see sort of the glow here. On this part of it, you're getting where it's kind of shielded from where the meteor was on the other side you're getting a greenish glow from the aurora. When you look over here, you don't get the greenish glow, you're getting almost a white. It almost looks illuminated by the light just from this pebble, little pebble, burning up in the Earth's atmosphere. So it gives you an idea of the amount of energy that is generated when one of these things smashes into the Earth's atmosphere at an extremely high speed and burns up. And even one like this isn't going to make it down to the Earth, it's going to burn up completely in the Earth's atmosphere. Most of these little ones don't come close to making it down to the ground. So, questions? Questions? I don't know. The one with the goat was prettier, but this has a little more story behind it. The one with the goat on Wednesday was kind of was kind of cute. No, no. All right, we're on to stars. We were looking at chapter ten. And I was talking about the different spectral types. So this is where we finished up on Monday. Was looking at the different spectral, different spectral classes of stars. And they're all related to the temperature. So we had the OBAFGKM class, set of classes. Because I made the mention last time about you know, how easy it is to memorize since that's just the way you'd want to name these classifications if you were coming up with the scale. You'd say these are the O's and then here's the B's and then there's the A's. Well that's not how it was originally done. Originally it was an ABC. You know, here's class A, here's class B, here's class C. When that was made, we didn't have the physical understanding of what was going on with the stars. All it was done was people looking at spectra and grouping them together. Here's one group of spectra. These look all the same. These are stars of class A. These all look the same, but they, they look different than A's. These are B's. Here's some others. These are another, another set. And you get down through the M's and so on. So originally they were done that way, but certain classes got eliminated, got condensed into others, and they got rearranged once we understood that this was actually a temperature sequence. So it didn't make, out, make sense to start with one of the middle temperatures, go up to a hotter star, then go down to much cooler stars, and then go back to a really hot star at the end, which you'd keep if you kept them in alphabetical order. 
But temperature increases this direction so that you have very hot stars and much cooler stars down here. So the M stars are much cooler. O stars are the hottest. And there's a big difference in temperature. An M star might be 3,000 degrees. A O star could be 30,000 degrees, 10 times hotter in terms of its temperature. So emitting also, therefore, emitting a lot more energy than it would be, than a much cooler star would. So that's where we're finishing up last time. And then, what do we see? How do we see them? These are some examples, again, giving the temperatures going from 3,000 to about 30,000 degrees. Some of the stars that we're aware of here, Betelgeuse is a very cool star, about 3,000 degrees, is an M-type star. Barnard star, we mentioned that as having the very fast motion, is a, another M-type star, a very cool star. Um, the Sun is a G-type star, sort of in between there. Stars like Rigel are extremely hot, tend to be bluish in color, is a B-type, B-class star. What we see when we look at them, we split the light out into the spectrum, we see different things with each one. Now this is a table from your textbook, table 10-2. And if you look at stars, very hottest stars, you see lines of ionized helium. Ionized helium means you have a helium atom, two protons and two neutrons in the nucleus. Normally helium has two electrons orbiting it. Ionized helium has had one of those electrons stripped away and now only has one electron orbiting it. That changes those energies, that it can, the energy levels that it can be in, and gives a completely different spectrum. So ionized helium and neutral helium give you two completely different spectra. You only see ionized helium in the very hottest stars because it takes a very high temperature, it takes a lot of energy to strip one of those electrons away from helium and keep it away. Otherwise, you'd get lines of neutral helium. So even when you go down just 10,000 degrees, go from 30,000 to 20,000 degrees, now you start to see neutral helium. You don't see ionized helium. If you look in the sun, if you look at the spectrum of the sun, ionized helium is something you don't see. It's only in the very, very hottest of the stars. You see helium lines, you see neutral helium lines in the hotter stars. Helium lines disappear. You don't see a lot of strong helium lines in the cooler stars either. Not because there's no helium there. It has nothing to do with how much of the element is there, but primarily because there's not enough energy. The star is not emitting enough energy to excite the helium atom. If you can't excite it to that first level, if you can't excite those atoms, if you have a set of energy levels here, 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 as we looked at with hydrogen, if my star is not emitting enough light to excite that up into those energy levels, we're never going to see the helium. It can be there, but if all of, the ad, all of the electrons are sitting in the ground state, you're never going to see a helium line. That's why the helium lines in the sun are relatively weak. The sun does not emit a lot of photons with enough energy to excite the helium into these higher energy levels. Most of the helium in the sun is in the ground state. We can still see it because there is some. The sun does emit some energy that's high enough and gives us very, very weak helium lines by comparison to some of the others. Now you'll see some of the other things. There's ionized, ionized heavy elements, 
Again, in astronomy, you have hydrogen and helium, and you pretty much have everything else. So hydrogen's 90% of the universe, helium's 10, and everything else makes up the rounding errors in between those two. So that's when they talk about heavy elements and metals. Really, to an astronomer, anything that's not hydrogen and helium is also called a metal. So to an astronomer, if you're talking about the metal, if they say you're talking about the metal content of a star, it means everything that's not hydrogen and helium, which includes things that we don't think of as metals like oxygen and nitrogen. You know, that, that's not a metal. But to an astronomer, it's anything. A metal is just anything else. Anything that is not hydrogen or helium. So it's the whole rest of that. It includes things like copper and iron, which we would classify as metals. But it also includes things like nitrogen and oxygen and neon, which you would not. We call it, they're gases, right? No, they're not metals. But to an astronomer, don't forget astronomers, when you're talking about stars, everything's a gas. Every, there's, there's no solid iron in, in a star. Yes, there are in the planets and in asteroids and things. But in a star, there is no solid iron. It's all gaseous. So in terms of what they consider, when we talk about metals and things here, you'll see that the only ones that are really specified are hydrogen, helium, and then the other ones are just, you can look at specific ones, but they're really kind of grouped together as the heavier elements are considered as metals. So, there, but the idea is there's a distinct pattern for each class. We see different sets of lines. <coughs> But what I wanted you to know is that it does not tell you about the, what the stars are made up of. It does not mean that an O star and a B star are made primarily of helium, while as these stars, the A's and F's, are made primarily of hydrogen. It doesn't tell you that. The composition of the stars is almost the same. Any star is made up of almost exact. There's little variations, yes. But pretty much, if I pick out a star, it's going to be 90% hydrogen and 10% helium. One might be 89.8 and one might be 90.2. There's little variations around it. But you're not going to get a star that has 70% hydrogen. You're not going to get a star that has you know, 30% helium. That just won't, that won't happen. They're all going to be very close. It's the temperature that tells you what lines you're going to see. It not, not, doesn't tell you the composition. You can learn about it, but it's really the temperature that tells you what lines you're going to see in a star. Now some stars, in terms of sizes, we can look at the sun. We can see a disk. Right? I can actually see how big the sun is. There's a few stars like Betelgeuse. Betelgeuse is a very large star. There's the Earth's orbit for scale. And with a large telescope and good uh, seeing conditions, you can actually map out contours and get an idea of how big Betelgeuse is. That's one of the few stars that you can do that for. The st in order to do it, the star has to be extremely large and very close to us. So if Betelgeuse were too much further away, I mean, that, that's, one of the big, that's one of the biggest stars and eh, a few hundred light years away. Not real close, but close enough that we can actually measure a size of it. Most of the time, we can't get sizes directly. And with sizes, I'm going to exit here for a second because I did have one thing to show you, and I'll come right back to that. I was going to do a quick video clip here, which is actually going through some of the sizes of stars. And you may have seen this. It's a clip from YouTube that actually goes through from, starts with the moon and goes through different, uh, different layers of stars and gives you an idea of how their sizes compare. So let me get this starting. 
And it will start off with the moon and go through the planets in the solar system giving an idea of how much bigger things get and how big some of these big stars can really be. Betelgeuse is not the biggest star by any sense of the imagination. So starting off with the moon there, we're going to go through the planets. Mercury makes the moon look tiny by the time you get up to Mars. And then Venus, the moon looks pretty darn tiny down there. It's off the screen already, but it look, it's pretty small. Now we do a jump. We go from Earth to one of the outer planets, Neptune, one of the smaller outer planets. Now it makes us seem small. We haven't gotten to a star yet. There's Jupiter. We're, you saw us just go off the screen there. Go from Jupiter to the Sun. Whoa. Quite a big difference. Sun is, the Sun is the solar system. Sirius is an even bigger star than the Sun. Pollux in Gemini is even bigger. There's Arcturus, a red giant. Boy, our Sun doesn't even look like much anymore. Aldebaran. There's Rigel in Orion. Pistol star, gigantic blue star, Antares. Getting real big there, aren't we? Betelgeuse isn't there. Betelgeuse would be a red supergiant. This is the red hypergiant, even beyond a supergiant. Largest known star. Um, it's going to give you a, here's the Earth to scale. As we zoom in on a little tiny portion of it, there's our speck of dust of the Earth will be to scale. <laughs> We're not much of anything, are we? <laughs> 2.8 billion kilometers in diameter. That's about 19, 18 astronomical units. Meaning if you put it at the center of the solar system, it would stretch out to Saturn. How long would it take to make an orbit flying in a nice airplane? 1,100 years if you could travel right around the surface of it. So just to give you an idea of how big these stars actually can get. That's a tremendous size. And you saw our sun was way back down that scale. We saw how big our Earth was. The sun wasn't that whole much bigger than the Earth to the scale of that star. So, end it here. You're not the center of the universe, right? All right. So this gives you an idea, as we were talking about sizes, I wanted to show that and give you an idea of what some of these sizes are and kind of give you a comparison. Since it's one thing to say, you know, stars are big, stars are really big, but you kind of get a comparison there for something you know of. Okay, the moon and the earth you have some sort of concept of. They're little tiny specks in comparison to some of the biggest stars. Betelgeuse is a relatively large star. It would have been up there with the red supergiants. Not a hypergiant like the last one that would take 1,100 years to travel around you know, in an airplane to travel around its surface. But it gives you some kind of idea of the sizes. But the problem is to determine the size of a star. These are the largest ones. We can see them. I can actually measure how big a star is with these. If I can actually see the, see the disk of the star, you can measure it. But that only works for a few of them. For most stars, we can't do that. I can't see the biggest, I can't see the size of the star. All it looks like is a point of light to the telescope. So you, but you can calculate it. You can calculate that the luminosity depends on the radius and the temperature of the star. So how bright the star is, that's something I can determine. How hot it is, that's something I can determine. If I know that, and there's more that goes into the equation, that's why there's not an equal sign. The little alpha means proportional to. 
So it says there's more constants and things in here that we're not going to worry about. But if I know the luminosity of a star, I know how bright it really is, not how bright it appears to us in the sky on Earth, but how bright it really is, and I know its temperature, that I can get from measuring its color, then I can determine how big it is. So if you have two stars, you could have two stars of the same temperature. You could have two stars that are about 3,000 degrees. We had Betelgeuse and we had Barnard star. They're both about the same temperature. They're both class M stars. They're both about the same temperature. So their temperature is the same. What can I tell, what can that tell me about their size? Well, I have to know their luminosities. Betelgeuse is one of the brightest stars in the sky. And it's not even all that close. It's still hundreds of light years away. Barnard star is much closer, but you need a pair of binoculars to even see it. Barnard star is one of those ones that's in our own backyard, you know, a few light years away. So it's much closer, same temperature. So luminosity is much, much bigger. Luminosity is much, much lower. That's telling me the size that Betelgeuse is a much larger star than Barnard star is. Okay? Same temperature, so I don't have to worry about the temperature part. All we're looking at is the luminosity and the size. If we know the temperatures, if we know those terms, we can then determine roughly what the sizes of the stars are. That's how we go about getting something like that little clip that I just showed you to determine how big some of these stars actually, actually are. So we classify stars not only on this OBAFGKM sequence, but we also classify them by different types of stars. There are dwarf stars, which are similar to the sun. Our sun would be classified as a dwarf star. No matter how many times bigger it is than the Earth and Jupiter, it's a dwarf star. It's a relatively small star. There are giant stars, as we just saw in that, that were a little bit bigger than the sun, maybe 10 up to 100 times bigger than the sun. And then there are supergiant stars, which are more than 100 times the diameter of the Sun. In fact, many times, as you saw in the video, much more than 100 times the diameter of the Sun. You know, that, la that largest star, that was, one, that was many more times than, 100 times, the size of, than 100 times the size of the Sun. So we also classify them sort of in a second dimension. There are um, dwarf stars and giants and supergiants. Not B. So we classify them this way and this way. So that means you can have an M star, like Barnard star, would be a dwarf M star. So M star and a dwarf. So you're filling out almost a table here. M star dwarf would be something like Barnard star. Betelgeuse, much more luminous, would be another M star. So it's still the same classification. But we want to differentiate between two stars like these that are okay, the same temperature, but there's not a lot else they have in common. They're quite different otherwise. So one is a dwarf star, one is a supergiant. Betelgeuse would be classified as a supergiant star. Again, same temperature. If I measure them, they're going to have similar components. They're going to look similar uh, spectral lines. You're going to see everything else the same. But very much larger in size. Even though temperature is the same, the size is going to be much more because the one is much more luminous. So supergiant stars and then hypergiant stars would be even well beyond that, which is the one we looked at at the end. 
Here's an example. Can, the video did a lot better on this. That's why I put that in there. Um, the radii vary quite widely. And there's an example. Antares was sort of in the middle of that group, of, middle to later part of that group of stars. It's about 500 times the radius of the sun. That goes out. Here's Mars's orbit to scale. So if you could take Antares and put it in our solar system, you know, Mercury is gone. Venus, gone. Earth, gone. Mars, gone. We're orbiting inside the star. That's not going to be stable, right? They're gone. They're all burned up and gone. Jupiter would be out here orbiting and Saturn. You, know, you could still have the larger planets orbiting. But the other one we were looking at, that largest star that we got in the video, would actually have gone out to the orbit of Saturn. So just to give you a sense, I mean, you know how big the, get an idea of how big the solar system is, but you've got not only Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, and Jupiter completely swallowed by the star, if you could put it in the center of the solar system. But Saturn would be swallowed, well, as Saturn's orbit, Saturn, if the closest parts of Saturn's orbit would be inside the star, the outer par parts of its orbit would be a little bit outside the diameter of the star. I mean, it's that, it's, that it's that close. It would get out about the orbit of Saturn. And that's just one star, that's just the star. That's you know, like the sun here at the center. That's, big, that's why these things look so bright in the, some of these look so bright in the sky. Or can be seen over distances. That one that we looked at isn't one of the brightest stars in the sky. It's so far away, but we can still see it. If it were a star like the sun, it would be invisible to us. You wouldn't be able to see it with Hubble Space Telescope if it were a star like the sun. But because it's so tremendously big, we can see it over very big distances. But really, that's what's giving you here is similar to what I just showed you. There's the inset with stars like, there's Jupiter, there's the sun, here's some smaller stars, and Barnard's star here, significantly smaller than the sun, about two-tenths the size of the sun, and then going upwards through the, uh, through the others. So similar to the video that I just showed you in terms of sizes. But I think the video showed it a little bit more dramatically with the motion and to be able to move through and look, see them side by side there. There are some incredibly tiny stars too. Proxima Centauri we mentioned, that's the closest star to the sun. That's less than a tenth the size of, of it. It's actually smaller than Jupiter. How do we do that? How do we have, how do we have Jupiter bigger than a star? Gravity. The more, the, as it gets bigger, as you add more material to something, it doesn't necessarily grow in size. Gravity can become stronger and pull down harder. And actually, as it condenses to a star, you can actually get objects that are smaller than a planet. So the planet gets bigger to a certain size, and then gravity starts to kick in and condenses it down even more. So you actually get kind of a variation there that you actually have stars, a regular star that is smaller than the sun. Now Sirius B is another one, even much smaller than Proxima. That's got a different explanation. Sirius B is what we classify as a white dwarf star. It's a dead star. So it's just the core of a star left over after it shed its outer layers. So it's about the size of the Earth. So still the mass of a star condensed down to the size of an Earth. But it's not a living star. And to be sense, it's not producing any energy. It's not doing that. It's just a dead remnant of a star that's left over. And we come up to that. We'll talk about those in a little more detail here in a couple chapters. But the whole idea is that there's a big range. You can go from things that are one one hundredth the size of the sun, the radius, to five hundred and well beyond that in terms of how big, how big a star can actually be. Okay. HR diagram.
I'm going to cover this a little bit in this chapter. Then before I go on to chapter 11, I'm coming back and doing another little lecture on the HR diagram we'll probably get to on Wednesday or Wednesday slash Friday to go through this in more detail. Because you're going to see this in chapter 10, you're going to see it in chapter 11 and 12 and 13 and scattered through the later parts of the class as well. But for the next couple chapters you're going to see a lot of HR diagrams and explain things in terms of how stars change their temperature and their luminosity as they go through their lives. So this is just a few stars plotted on what we call an HR diagram. An HR diagram plots the surface temperature of the star, how, how hot it is on the surface. Sun would be about 6,000 degrees. There it is. About 6,000 degrees, a little bit less. And its luminosity. How bright is it compared to the sun? So on this the sun should be right about one unit. So sun is about one luminosity. Then there's a couple other stars put in there. There's Proxima Centauri, much cooler than the Sun and much fainter. There is Sirius V, much fainter than the Sun but also much hotter than the Sun. There are also are stars like Rigel, which are much more luminous than the Sun and much hotter. There are stars like Betelgeuse on the other side, which are still much brighter than the Sun but much cooler. No pattern to them. Right? We just have a random grouping of stars here. If we look at specific sets of stars, we actually start to see patterns form in the HR diagram. If it just was a random splattering of stars all over this diagram, it wouldn't do you much good. Right? You've got to look for patterns and see where do the stars tend to appear. Do they appear in all over the diagram or do they only tend to appear in certain places? <coughs> now, here's the 80 closest stars to the Sun plotted on an HR diagram. So we took 80 stars that are the closest to the sun. Where do they appear? There's our sun. Boy, we're one of the brightest stars. Among those 80 closest to us, we're one of the brightest. Yeah, Alpha Centauri's close and a little bit brighter. Procyonae, Altair, Sirius, they're a little bit brighter. But we're one of the brighter stars in our neighborhood. A lot of stars that are much fainter than the sun, all going down this portion. But you start to see a pattern developing as to where the stars occur. There's a pattern, a line that goes from the upper left hand corner down to the lower right, which we call the main sequence. That is where most of the stars, if you pick out a random star out of the sky, out of a star catalog, and plot it on the HR diagram, find its temperature, find its luminosity, most of the stars are going to land on this main sequence. Meaning that you don't necessarily see on these main sequence stars, they tend to be the cooler ones tend to be fainter. The hotter ones tend to be brighter. Now there are stars that fall off of this and we'll look at that in a little bit. The, white, the other thing that's there is that there's this, these white dwarf stars. These are those ones I mentioned before. There's Sirius B. These are the compact dead cores of a star. They're extremely hot because this was the core of the star and if you recall the core of the sun is about 15 million degrees. If you expose that out to space, it's going to cool off slowly over time. And by the time we're getting to see them, they're about you know, 30,000 to 10,000 degrees. They're cooling off. But that's all they're doing. They're just that leftover core of the star that's slowly cooling off out in space. They're not producing any energy. All the stars on the main sequence are producing energy in their cores just like the sun. They're fusing hydrogen into helium and generating their own energy. 
And that's true for whether they're very small stars like Barnard's or Proxima Centauri, or if they're much larger stars like Sirius. They're all doing the same thing in their core. Now the stars here in the white dwarf region, they're very hot, high temperatures. So go back to our equation here. They're very high temperatures, but very low luminosities. So their temperatures are higher compared to, they're comparable in temperature to, say, Sirius A, which was one of those bigger stars, a little bit bigger than the sun. So they're comparable in temperature, a little bit hotter, a little bit cooler to that. But compared to that star, now that we've got stars that's a comparable temperature, they're so much less luminous means they've got to be incredibly tiny. And these are about the size of the Earth. So you take all that material, you take all the material in the sun, and you crush it down almost as small as you can go so that the, uh, the electrons and the atoms are touching each other as close as they can possibly allowed to get. You know, there's going to be a repulsion among the electrons when you get them too close together. That ends up holding the star up. So you've just smashed all that material that's the size of the sun down to something the size of the Earth just by squishing out that extra space between the atoms. You can squish it even smaller. And that comes up in a couple chapters, though. Now if we look at the 100 brightest stars, so we looked at 80 close stars, what if we look at 100 bright stars? These are the stars, these are the ones you're going to re- may recognize the names of. Antares, Deneb, Betelgeuse, Arcturus, Capella, Vega, Altair. Now, few of them repeat, right? We've got Alpha Centauri, we've got Procyon, you've got Altair, you've got Vega, or Sirius, sorry, Vega wasn't on the last one. You have a few stars that appeared last time. So a few of the bright stars that were, that were among the brightest stars and, and the others. But you notice that there's none of those bright stars that appear way down here. Remember all our stars that the closest ones were way down here in the main sequence. The brighter stars are much rarer. We see them, they're common because they're so bright and we can see them over large distances. But they're much rarer in terms of space. There aren't that many in each cubic parsec of space. There's very few of these very bright stars. Things like Betelgeuse are not common. They're the unusual stars that are standing out. So these stars look bright, not because they're close to us. A few of them are. Alpha Centauri would not be visible if it weren't one of the closest stars to us. It's relatively bright because it's four light years away. If it were 40 light years away, it would look pretty faint. If it were much further than that, you wouldn't even be able to see it except with the telescope. But the other stars are so much bigger, they're so much bigger, and the sizes are given on here. These are things that are about the size of the sun. These are 10 times, 100 times, or even more the size of the sun. So we're talking about a lot of these stars that are much, much bigger than the sun. And that's where they're getting their names. The giants, red giants, blue giants, red supergiants. Much, much larger stars than the sun. But again, they're the brightest stars not because they're so, not because they're, clo- not because they're close, but because they're so bright. Many of these stars are so many times more, many times more further away. The ones we saw on the previous slide, all down here, those are the close stars to us. That's more what a typical star is like. I mean, picking out a random star, you're probably more likely to get a good sample if you just pick out the stars closest to you than if you just pick out the brightest stars in the sky. Brightest stars in the sky are unusually bright. We can see them 
not just because they're here, but we can see them if they're 100 light years or 200 or 500 or 800 light years away, they can still look extremely bright. You can imagine how bright that giant star, right, that supergiant, hypergiant thing would look if it were only, you know, two light, four light years away like Alpha Centauri. How bright would that appear in the sky? That would be tremendous. It's not, it doesn't even, it doesn't even have a regular name like these. It's named for, a, it was named after a, var a variable star, so it wasn't detected, you know, immediately. It wasn't a very prominent star in the sky, but it's because it's so far away that it looks that faint. Now, do a lot more stars, 20,000 stars. We start to see, you kind of put the two together. There's a pattern occurring that you see the main sequence here. There's a few oddball stars that are scattered around, but pretty much there's very distinct areas where stars tend to appear. They appear on the main sequence. They appear in the red giant region. There's some that go up into the supergiants there or beyond. Most of the stars in the universe are main sequence stars. About 90% of them are on the main sequence. So if we pick a random star out of the sky, you got about a 9 in 10 chance that it's going to be on the main sequence. You got about a 1 in 10 chance that it's going to be a red giant. And you got about a 1 in 10 chance that it's going to be a white dwarf. So all those other ones, all those big gigantic stars that we were looking at, the hypergiants and the supergiants, are just the rounding errors in these measurements. They're the very rare stars. Why are they so rare? Primarily because they don't live very long. It means you're only seeing them at a snapshot of their lives. A star like the Sun will spend 10 billion years on the main sequence. It's a long time. Long time, it's on the main, so astronomers observing it now, you know, from a distant solar system, and observing it a billion years from now, and a billion years after that, are still going to see it there. A star may last in the red giant region for hundreds of millions of years. Still a long time, but a lot less than 10 billion years. Stars might last in the supergiant regions for millions of years. It's not a very long time in comparison. If you observed it 5 million years ago, it wasn't there. If you observe it five million years later, it's not there. Again, it's a long time for us, but the star moves through it relatively quickly. So you're happening to catch it there. You have to catch it in that, in that phase where it is on that, at that specific part of the HR diagram. And you're getting it. You're getting a random sample of some of them that happen to be in that exact state. But you're not going to catch a lot of them. The rarer stars, as you get to those bigger and bigger ones, are going to be much rarer. They're not going to last in that stage for a very long time. Now, white dwarfs will last a very long time. White dwarfs are just cooling off. There's nothing else that's going to happen to them, except in very rare instances. But nothing else much is going to happen to them. But they're not very populous. They're only 1% because they're hard to find, too. They're so faint. We see a couple of them. We see the ones around Sirius. We see the one around Procyon, Sirius B, and Procyon B. Well, they're there because they're orbiting another star, we can find them. But even though they're that hot, they're so many times fainter. Remember how faint these stars were? To try to see, Barnard's star was not visible except with a pair of binoculars or a telescope. So these stars are not going to be visible. And that's if they're the closest ones. Those are the ones that are you know, 10, 20 light years away. When you get things that are hundreds or thousands of light years away, they're invisible to us. 
matter how hot they are, they're not emitting enough energy for us to be able to see them. So they're there. There's probably a lot more white dwarfs than we think. Because a lot of stars, a lot of these stars on the main sequence in red giant region will eventually end up as a white dwarf as they go through their lives. But that's the subject of chapter 12, so we don't want to jump too far ahead. So let's go to distances. For this I mentioned parallax. Parallax was the parent shifting of a star by our position around, around the sun. So we went from one end of the sun to the other end of the sun, the star appeared to move <coughs> in the sky. So it appeared against different background stars. Spectroscopic parallax is our next method of determining distances. It has nothing to do with parallax. It has nothing to do with the Earth being on this side of the Sun versus it being on this side of the Sun and making observations. It's using spectroscopic parallax. It means using spectroscopy to determine distance. So using that parallax, it's a way of determining distances the way the regular parallax was, it's just determining distances using the spectrum of a star. So what you do is use, you can measure the star's apparent magnitude. That's easy. That's how bright it appears on the Earth. Okay? So I can get something that uh, attached, attach an instrument to the telescope that measures the temperature, that measures the brightness of the star. That's easy to get. That's just how bright it appears from, this, from the star. We can get the spectral class, right? look at the spectrum, look at what spectral lines are visible, and estimate there. Okay, is it an O star, B, A, F, G, K, M? You know, where does it fall? We can do that. If we use those two, we determine the spectral class, we get those two. Now apparent magnitude doesn't help us a lot. Apparent magnitude just means how bright it appears from the Earth. We really want to know how bright it is. It is. In real life, how bright really is it out there? We can get that from the spectral class. From the spectral class, and I'll come back here in just a second. Let me go back one slide. We can estimate what its luminosity is if we can determine its spectral class. Okay, here is a G star. Boom! Its, spe- its luminosity is about the luminosity of the sun. Well, guess what? You can subdivide these a little bit, so you can say where it is between G and there you can subdivide them 0 through 9 in between to sort of estimate in between. And you could say this star, like the sun is a G2, it's about 5800 degrees, is such and such a luminosity, about one luminosity. An M star, it's going to be significantly less luminous. This is luminosity. This is how bright the star really is, how much energy it is emitting. If we can determine that, We can determine that luminosity, so we use the spectral class and the HR diagram to get what the luminosity of the star is. If we know the luminosity, how much energy that star is actually emitting from each bit of its surface, then we can use the inverse square law and we can work backwards and find out how far away the star is. So it's not a direct measure of distance. It depends on having an HR diagram in the first place. In order to get an HR diagram that has luminosities on it, you've got to know the luminosities. So you're getting kind of a cycle here. You've got to know the luminosities in order to do it. So you have to be able to use some of the stars that are close enough to measure with a regular parallax, measuring their shift, in order to calibrate the HR diagram. So you know where all of these, go back one more time, where all these luminosities occur. So we know exactly where those luminosities are. We have to get some distances to some of these stars 
to determine exactly what this scale is like on the left-hand side. Once we do that, then we can find distances. Then we can use that for any star that we can get that's bright enough for us to get a spectrum of. If we can take its spectrum and determine its spectral classification, boom, I've got the luminosity, I've got the distance. That helps get us much further out in our galaxy in terms of determining distances. Remember, we we're very limited in parallax as to how far out we could go. And in fact, here it is, very close in. I mentioned it, but you, could, you, you can use radar. Radar will bounce off things like Venus, um, Mars, the Moon, to get distances that aren't very far away, about within an astronomical unit. That doesn't help us a heck of a lot in the universe. You know, that gets out to our two nearest planets and the Moon. Not much else in the solar system we can use radar for. Stellar parallax, that's the direct method. That gets you out to about 200 parsecs. 200 parsecs, parsecs a little over 3 light years. You're talking about 600 to 700 light years. Sounds very far. Light year is a long distance. But our galaxy is between 75 and 100,000 light years across. This gets us out to about 700 of those. Just in our little backyard is all we're able to determine with stellar parallax. Our spectroscopic parallax, again, determine the spectral class, use that to determine the luminosity, use the luminosity to give you the distance, works out to maybe 10,000 parsecs or about 32,000 light years. Much better. We're getting out a big chunk of our galaxy. There's more steps to come in this distance ladder. We'll be going through this through the, through the, end, of the end, of the end of the class, and it goes out a lot further in order to be able to determine the rest of the distances. But still, these methods, we'll see that they keep growing on each other. That if you don't have good measurements of parallax and distances for some star, that calibrates this one. So errors here combine to errors here. Errors in these combine to errors in the next one. So any errors keep building on each other. So distances are very, very difficult to determine because this way the errors build on each other. Now, one of the problems is remember that we had how I said to do this. You determine the spectral class, right? So you determine it's an M star, maybe an M2, and then you determine its luminosity. Well, if it's 3,000 degrees, it also depends, you know, is it here? Is it here? here? Which one of these, which luminosity class is it? Now, I gave you just the primary ones when I did this here, the dwarfs, the giants, and the supergiants, because that's what we would looked at. There is also a class in between, which is subgiants. And then we have class, let's see, subgiants is four, and then you got the bright giants, which is two. So dwarf, giant, and supergiant are primary ones. That's where you see most of the stars occurring. But there are some that fall in between them, which are classified as either subgiants. They're bigger than a regular star like the sun. They're not quite as big as the giant stars. We may find later that they're ones that are on their way. You know, they're on their way to becoming a giant star, and we've caught them in that even shorter time period as they're doing it, as they're getting to that direction. Bright giants, same way, might be going giants to hypergiants or back and forth. We'll see the stars move around when they get up into that upper portion as they go through their lives. 
So we really need to determine not just the temperature, but we've got to determine the luminosity as well. And that's what the table is showing you, the luminosity classes. And one of the ways to determine that is by looking at how wide the spectral lines are. So if you look at them in detail, you're going to see the same pattern of lines here. right? Here's a dwarf star. Here's a supergiant star. The dwarf star is much more condensed material. And it gives you the higher pressure, gives you much broader spectral lines. So the spectral lines, even though the pattern is the same, right? Line here, line here, line there, line there. Same pattern of four lines. They're identical. So you're seeing the same spectral lines, but the width of them depends on how dense the atmosphere is. A bright super giant, supergiant, way out there, hypergiant, it's not very dense way out there. Very little material, so there's not as much for it to bra- to to bang into each other, and it doesn't broad- the lines don't get as broadened as much as they do in a much more condensed star. So it's one of the ways that astronomers can use to determine which luminosity class you're in. So spectroscopic parallax works, and it works real well, but you can't just determine the spectral class. You can't just say the sun is a G2 star. Okay, we can find it's a star just like the sun. It's a G2 star. You know, it's going to be at such and such a distance. We know how luminous it is. How far away is it going to be? Because it also depends on, does it fall in the main sequence? If that's right, then everything I said is right. You will be able to determine that exactly based on comparing it to the sun. But if it's a giant star, it's not going to work. Giant <coughs> star is going to have, be, be brighter. So if we think it's the same brightness as the sun, but it's really a lot times brighter, we're going to get a problem in measuring the distances. Is that about? Yeah, let me see what's... Well, this is me finish up here because this is the same thing and then we'll finish the rest of this on Wednesday. But it's one of the ways that we can determine. So what we find is these three stars are all about the same temperature, 4300 to 4900 degrees. They're all classified as K2 stars. There's a red giant, there's a supergiant, there's a main sequence star. The luminosities and the radii are quite different and that means the, the distances would be wrong if you didn't take that into account. Because otherwise you'd look at these all the same spectral class of a star. You'd assume, guess they're all the same luminosity as the main sequence star. You'd say they're all this very tiny luminosity. So they must be, if they're looking this bright to us, this is a super, this is a red giant star, one of the brighter stars in the sky. Looks so giant. Looks so bright. It's not really very bright. We think, because we're using an erroneous assumption, then it mu- we must think we're going to get the distance test. We're going to assume it's a lot closer than it otherwise would be. So we need to very accurately get both of these determinations. We have to determine not only the temperature class, which is the OBAFGKM, but we have to determine the luminosity class, which is Roman numeral 5, 4, 3, 2, or 1. 1's being supergiants, 5 being dwarf stars. So the sun would really be a G2 star with a Roman numeral 5V after it. That would be the classification of the sun. It's a G2 star tells us the temperature sequence. This tells us its luminosity. That's not a giant star. It's not a supergiant star. It's actually a dwarf star. So I'm going to finish up there and we'll get ready for lab. And then I will come back and finish up. I'm almost done. There's only a little bit more in chapter 10. I'll come back chapter 10 on Wednesday and then go 
go back over the HR diagram a little bit more and we'll finish that up probably Wednesday. Finish up chapter 10 by Friday. Questions? Questions? Take a break for a couple minutes and I'll get the computer set up for the lab and we'll get ready. <laughs>